I'm not afraid. Are you? The Watchman Speaks discusses biblical solutions to modern-day dilemmas. I'll tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear. I am the old watchman, Ezekiel. I pray you listen. Welcome to The Watchman Speaks. I'm your host, Bonnie Richardson. I'm going to address something today that many of you may disagree with, vehemently. That's okay, you have every right to disagree with me. I'm fine with that. However, I'm not one to compromise the Word of God, and when that Word is compromised, I take a bold stance against that. And it's not that I wish to express or convey any superiority of understanding or wisdom. I'm more interested in what God said than what I or you think. But I have grown weary of the church being misled by unscrupulous pastors and teachers who author books so that those pastors and teachers can make a dollar peddling what sounds good and feels good. Riding a bicycle 100 miles a day sounds like fun and a worthy fitness goal. But when you actually attempt to do so, it turns into a different story. Also, it is my duty as a watchman to warn you of these errant teachings so that you do not wander about in a deceived state of false assurance. Whether you choose to heed the warnings or not, that's your decision. But there will be no blood on my hands. What am I going to discuss? Well, let me ask a question. Why is it that when a shofar, a trumpet, or a talit, a prayer shawl, are brought out in the church, that the church feels a sense of foreboding and uneasiness. I'm speaking of the people in the church, in America, these United States of America. I've been told by pastors, when I've asked about sounding the shofar or donning my talit, that they would prefer that I did not do those things. They said, the people won't understand and it might frighten them. No. What he was really saying is that he was afraid that some of the congregation might be offended or they wouldn't come back. If they don't come back, they won't be putting their dollar in that offering plate. But what would they have to be frightened of? Both the trumpet and the talit are documented in God's word. If they don't understand or they're fearful of the shofar or the talit, I'd say the pastor's not done his job. A certain case in point occurred about a week ago when I was asked to visit with the church about 30 miles away. I was contacted by a dear friend of mine who is a Messianic Jew to come sound the shofar and briefly share some things with the congregation. I agreed to do so. Cheryl and I made the short trip out of town for a visit. Prior to the church services starting, a gentleman approached my friend and accused him of attempting to make their worship service a Jewish service. Now, I didn't learn about this accusation until afterwards. I can only assume that this gentleman thought the same of me. And if that be the case, there are a few things wrong with the gentleman's conclusions. First of all, I am not a Jew. I am as rednecked and as evangelical as a Protestant can be. 
The second thing that I question is that it seems that this gentleman is considering anything Jewish to be a bad thing. It was as if he was resistant to the concept of being Jewish. Both the Shofar and the Talit are documented in both the Old and New Testaments in the Bible. What objections could this gentleman have of that? Because he considered them Jewish? My friends, that is veiled anti-Semitism. When the pastor of the church, whom I believe to be a good man, introduced my friend and me to the church, he did so referring to the Shofar as a Jewish trumpet. I cringed in my seat. It wasn't that he was afraid of the shofar, or concerned for that matter. He was happy that we were there. He was joyful. But he did not understand that the shofar is not a Jewish trumpet. The shofar is God's trumpet. We did not even present the talit for this service because we knew that the trumpet might be accepted, but the talit would probably scare some people. But the word talit means little tent. All of Israel could not fit in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, so God designed the tallit so that each person would have their own little tent in which to meet with God in prayer. I'll get to the tallit a little later on. But what amazes me is how the modern Western church will absolutely begin pinging off the wall the moment that they see a shofar or a tallit brought out. The reaction is as if you would have released every known Level 4 disease known to man from the CDC in the midst of the church. It's almost as if they were thinking, Oh no, the Jews are invading the church. Now don't blow a gasket, fellows. Ladies, loosen that girdle. It is we Gentiles who invaded the church and, I might add, made a bigger mess of things. The Shofar and the Talit are established by God long before there were any Jews. That means that it is for all people. What do I mean by that? Well, the shofar was firmly established in the biblical text in Exodus 19, when God called the people of Israel and Moses to Mount Sinai. And perhaps, according to ancient Hebrew custom and tradition, as far back in Genesis 22, when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, and God provided a ram as a substitutionary sacrifice. Abraham, being the father of the Hebrew nation, Israel, and the Jews. Aren't they the same? Well, no. What do I mean by that? Abraham and Isaac and their descendants were Hebrew. Esau and his descendants were Hebrew. Jacob, whom God named Israel, would be the father of the nation of Israel, who were, by the way, also considered Hebrew. Initially, when the nation of Israel was led out of Egypt, Israel was a Hebrew nation. Israel was the nation. They were a race of people known as Hebrew. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3 reads, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that were at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. It was not until the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah in 975 B.C. that there were Jews. The tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi lived in the southern kingdom and became known as Jews in a biblical, historical sense. 
Today, anyone descended from any of the tribes of Israel are considered Jews. So in order of context, we have Hebrews, Israel, ancient Jews, and modern Jews. I'm just putting that out there so that you'll know there is a difference. So the shofar was initiated long before there were Jews. As I've already said, the shofar was firmly established in Exodus 19, possibly as early as Genesis 22. So was the tallit in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. And people will say, yeah, but that's for the Jews. Well, I remind you that the tallit and the shofar were established long before there were Jews. At the time, there were Hebrews that made up the nation of Israel. Now, I'm just imparting this information so that you'll know. So why is the modern church so reticent in regard to the shofar and to the elite? What makes them so afraid? Well, I'll tell you the root of the issue is this. Because the shofar and the elite and other practices are deeply rooted in the opening recesses of the Bible or the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and ancient Hebrew culture and early history of Israel, the issue at hand in these things leave a lingering smell and taste of the law. Most evangelicals gasp in horror and disbelief when the law is mentioned. Many have a difficult time to even dare to read anything prior to Matthew. We're not under the law, they scream. We're under a new covenant. We're under the blood of Jesus. Well, they got one out of three correct, but one out of three won't cut it. Let's start with the latter and work backwards towards the former. Yes, Jesus died to fulfill the law for the sake of righteousness and ceremony. Our righteousness is by the redeeming blood of Jesus and our faith in him. No argument there. We no longer have to have a high priest to enter into the holy of holies that doesn't exist anymore every year with the blood of goats and bulls to atone for our sins. Jesus entered into the holy of holies not made by the hand of man one time and offered his blood to atone for our sins forevermore. Which brings me to the topic of grace. I'm going to say this one time, so listen closely. Joseph Prince has done more harm to the body of Christ with his teaching on grace than any other person approaching the subject. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. We are dead to sin. I can agree with that in proper context. Sin can not cause us any harm because our sins past and present and future are totally forgiven. I can agree with that to an extent, but only in proper context. You see, it's the context of what God said and how he said it. That makes a huge difference. We're in the blood of Jesus, covers our sin. We're dead to sin. Our sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. It all sounds good, warm, soft, and fuzzy. Jesus has overcome the law. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 16:33, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has not overcome the law. He overcame the world. The worldly things that cause our flesh to desire sin and sinful behavior. Jesus also said, Do you think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets? 
I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You find that in Matthew five seventeen through 18. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but all has not been accomplished, and heaven and earth have not as yet passed away, and if it has, I didn't get the memo. My goodness, it would seem that we are faced with a dilemma here. On one hand, Jesus is saying, I can save you. On the other hand, he's saying the law is still the law. What is this? Is this contradiction? Not hardly. It is an indication as to how grace has been twisted into something that it is not. How do I find grace? Well, grace is the offering, the sacrifice that God made by hanging the Son on the cross to provide you and me a ticket out. Would you offer your Son up to be sacrificed so that I would not have to suffer the same fate? I doubt it. That offering, that sacrifice, for the forgiveness of our sins, here's the caveat. The offering of that sacrifice itself was grace, in that we do not deserve the chance or the offer of salvation and eternal life in God's presence. That's unmerited favor in and of itself. What did Jesus say to the woman when the religious leaders brought her before Jesus, stating that she had been caught in the very act of adultery? Those leaders told Jesus that by law she was to be stoned. What did Jesus have to say? He knelt down and scribbled in the sand and said, that he is without sin cast the first stone. They all tossed their rocks down and walked away. Then Jesus said to the woman, Go and sin no more. He was telling her that she had been pardoned, forgiven, and to go but do not continue in sin. Which leads me to another point. Not only did Jesus die for the sake of righteousness, ceremony, but for judgment. He reserved judgment for himself for a later time. When I talk about the law, there's always someone who steps up and says, yeah, but we don't stone people anymore. And that would be correct. The act of stoning, according to the law, was a sentence of judgment. Perhaps we shouldn't have stopped stoning people. If we hadn't stopped stoning people, we probably would not be facing many of the issues that we see in today's society. But that would have negated the judgment of Christ that is to come. Jesus has reserved the judgment for himself. He is the judge. He will be the judge and the jury. And I can hear the screams and howls of protest already, but he forgives all our sins. Grace was conferred with the offering, the sacrifice on the cross. Why would we ask for continued grace? How can we ask for more than that which was already given? Shouldn't we, as Jesus told the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more? But I can hear the screams and protests continue, but no one is perfect. No, none of us is perfect. But if you think you can continue in conscious, repetitive, habitual sin, tipping your hat and winking at Jesus when you go by, well... I wouldn't want to walk that tightrope. One might hang themselves with it. What does Paul say in Romans 6, 1, 2? 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on to say that in baptism, we are buried in the likeness of Christ who took our sins upon himself and we are raised in the newness of life. A newness of life. Let me say this to all who believe that they are dead to sin and that sin is no longer sinful. A newness of life? Well, when you meet my Jesus, you change. I don't go along with this stuff that Stephen Furtick preaches that God didn't have to change you, that he only revealed who you were all along. No, uh-uh, I don't buy that. When you meet my Jesus, you change. See, I was once lost in sin. I was sinful. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. But when I met Jesus, all that changed. I no longer wanted to sin. Am I sinless? No, I can't tell that lie. Do I sin less? A whole lot less than I once did. And when I recognize sin in my life, I repent and I turn away from it. But that's the key. You recognize your sin, you turn away from that sin, you repent, and you sin no more. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 30 read, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Let me read that again. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant which he has sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we who know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. A fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Those are all quotes from the Old Testament concerning the law. And for what will the Lord judge his people repay in exact vengeance for? On those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth for whom there is no sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment. How much severe a punishment is deserved for those who set aside the law of Moses and have trampled underfoot the Son of God and shown disdain for the blood of his covenant? insulting the spirit of grace. That's what you do when you continue sinning willfully, habitually, repetitively, knowing that it is sin. Well, how do you know what sin is? What is sin? Sin is an ancient archery term meaning to miss the mark. In a biblical perspective, it's missing God's standard for us, how we should live. Well, how do you know that if you're continuing in sin? Hold your breath. I'm going to say it. You refer to the law. 
You do not refer to the law for salvation or ceremony of atonement or for pronouncing judgment. You refer to the law to know what sin is and how to avoid it by power of the Holy Spirit within you. It's truly this simple. The law is a code of moral conduct of how we not only present ourselves to others, but how we conduct ourselves privately. I'd like to address you good people who scream, we're under a new covenant. Well, are you? We all know that Jesus bore those stripes for our healing and our deliverance and provision of our salvation, right? That's new covenant, right? Well, it might surprise you that the new covenant that you're so proud of isn't so new. What do I mean? If you'll look in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, you'll see that God laid down some requirements prior to the law and proclaimed himself healer. That covenant name is Yahweh Rathe. In Exodus 16, God provided water from a rock and manna from heaven, giving himself the covenant name Yahweh Yara, God who provides. In Exodus 17, the Amalekites attacked Israel. Moses went up onto a hill, and as long as he held his hands up, Israel prevailed. When he dropped his hands, Israel started losing. But they did prevail because Moses continued to keep his hands raised up in praise. God established his name, Yahweh Nisi. Lord is my banner of victory. And I could go on and on, and perhaps someday I will, how much the new covenant is still rooted in the old covenant that is, as yet, unfulfilled. God is my healer. God is my provider. God is my banner of victory. You don't want some of that covenant? I do. Jesus only reaffirms those things, for he is God, still. Another thing, in case you think that I am in error, I present to you what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, which read, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That sounds good. But he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. See, I see this as an affirmation of what I've already said. Jesus died and fulfilled the law for the sake of salvation, righteousness. Salvation is not acquired by the law, for if it was so, then Jesus died needlessly. Jesus fulfilled the law for the sake of ceremony, and as a high priest, he atoned for our sin. It's not that we shouldn't remember or observe Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We should celebrate even more that we have a high priest that has made atonement for us with his own blood. Jesus fulfilled the law in regard to judgment that we do not condemn or execute judgment, for he is the judge and the jury at the last day. What Jesus did not do is abolish the law as a means to point out, instruct, lay a foundation as to how we should live our daily lives. Not as in Orthodox Judaism, because we feel like we have to, but because we want to honor the spirit of grace and the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf. The law is not a bad thing. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, 
I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for to me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. It appears to me that Paul tells us we have a choice, and it's the choices that we make. So where does all this lead? Well, it leads back to where I first started to the modern evangelical church who views matters that appear to be Jewish and the disdain for what appears to be Jewish. The Jews, even Messianic Jews, have not forgotten what God said. On the other hand, the Western church in America has not only forgotten what God said, but have accepted twisted teachings of some popular television pastors and authors. Be very careful with that. It's your responsibility to find the truth for yourselves. So I'm going to keep on sounding the shofar in churches. I'm going to continue to wear my tallit at times. I'm going to remember what God said and conduct myself accordingly. Why shouldn't I? I mean, God gave me his word to light my path. I'm going to follow that path, not to make a show, but to, out of reverential fear and love for my Heavenly Father, my Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit who abides within me. To label such things merely as Jewish is an anti-Semitic act shadowed by ignorance. I am the old watchman, Ezekiel, and you have been warned. Well, that's all for now. I thank you for your time and participation. Our time together is precious to me. Please, come and visit me at theoldwatchman.com for show notes, articles, video content, book reviews, Bible study material reviews, and Bible study methods. It's my hope and prayer that you get to know me through this podcast. Through the website at theoldwatchman.com, I can get to know you. If you like the content, consider following The Old Watchman on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. See you next time. May nothing in your life be missing. Nothing in your life be broken. Shalom.